Kevin Markwick. You see, we can move in the other three. As the doctor said, up, down, forwards, backwards, sideways. But when it comes to time, we are prisoners. Hey, Doc, we better back up. We don't have enough roads to get up to 88. Roads? Well, we're going, we don't need roads. You maniac! You blow it up! God damn you! God damn you all some kind of hot tub time machine. Gee, but it's great to be back home. Home is where I want to be. I've been on the road so long, my friend. And if you came along, I know you couldn't disagree. It's the same old story. Yeah. Everywhere I go, I get slandered. called uh, Simon and Garfunkel keeping the customers satisfied something that always proves often more difficult than you would imagine hello it's Kevin Markwick here for the next two hours on our jaunt through the 1970s and we're up to 1975 uh, all sorts tonight. We've got some Towering Inferno, Monty Python, Barry Lyndon, 
and James Bond, uh, always our favourite. So how are you doing out there? If you are out there, let me know. If you're listening to the podcast, let me know. So, it's quite an interesting show, actually, tonight. Even if I say so myself. Uh, it's 1975. Margaret Thatcher became the leader of the Conservative Party. The Vietnam War came to an end. The Vauxhall Chevette was launched. Hey. And we voted to stay in the EU. Hey. You know, the best-selling single of the year was Bye Bye Baby by the Bay City Rollers. That's not an easy thing to say. And the top-selling album was the best of the stylistics. Yeah, finger on the pulse here, didn't we? Uh, in cinema, things were starting to get really bad, business-wise. Total admissions were 116 million, down from 138 million in 1974. And that wasn't going to be the end of it, I'll tell you. And looking at the book my father kept, uh, you can see it all starting to really go south. It's not that all the films were bad, although a great number were. It's just that the good ones weren't commercial and the bad ones were just bad. Uh, there were a few bright spots, um, either half-term holidays or the odd big, big spectacular, but clearly it's becoming a real struggle. And having only one screen was starting to exacerbate the problem because if the film dies, then that's the whole week down the tubes. There was, however, a reasonable bright spot bright spot at the start of the year
that's from Freebie and the Bean. Does anybody remember that one? Uh, music by Dominic Frontier. Uh, and Freebie and the Bean actually was pretty much the first buddy cop movie, as far as I can see. It was a massive hit in the US. Uh, Freebie is the charismatic but volatile one, played by James Kahn. And Fastidious and Neurotic Bean is played by Alan Arkin. Uh, it's quite good fun in a vaguely bad taste way, as far as I can remember. I did see it a few times through the 70s. Uh, it was usually a second feature. Um, in fact, I recall it was one of uh, Blazing Saddles' perennial partners uh, subsequently. It's notable here as a film that was released in the same month as it played. Uh, clearly, we were coming closer to playing on release, which must have had a positive effect, or at least... Stop things getting really, really bad. 1,082 admissions over seven days on January the 19th. So that was a January release playing in January. The flags must have gone out. Um, okay, uh, you're listening to Kevin Markwick. It's Monday night on Uckfield FM. If you're not letting off fireworks, then uh, you could be listening. If you are listening, please get in touch with the show. You can email me at studio at uckfieldfm.co.uk or you can hit me up on Twitter at Kevin Markwick. There is a Facebook page, The Kevin Markwick Show. Um, you can send me a message there. Uh, you can even interact on the website, on the upfieldfm.co.uk website. There's a sort of messagey thing there. Um, and if you're listening to the podcast, please do let me know what you think. Are you enjoying it? Did you go to the cinema uh, in the 70s? Did you go to Uckfield Cinema in the 70s? Because I'd like to hear from you. That would be great. Um, now, uh, an acknowledged classic that played Uckfield for the first time in 1975 uh, bear in mind we were still a bit behind release, was uh, Roman Polanski's Chinatown. A tremendous film, of course, but I've never understood why it's called a film noir. Film noir was surely in black and white with minimal lighting. Uh, wasn't it um, identified as a cheap and effective way of creating mood? I don't know. That's what I thought. Chinatown's in Cinemascope, with lustrous colour images by John Alonso. Yeah, it's about a private detective and has a dark theme, but it's hardly low budget. Anyway, despite being released in August 1974, it first played seven days in Uckfield on January the 12th, 504 admissions. This is going to be a common theme, I'm afraid. I mean, 500 admissions in a week. It's not great, is it? Um, no one came to see it, really. <laughs> Classic film! Uh, Jack Nicholson's Private Dick, Jake Gittes who sucked into a Byzantine plot involving femme fatale Faye Dunaway and her overbearing father, played by uh, John Huston, who was successfully impersonated by Daniel Day Oscar in uh, the oil film. <laughs> you know, um, there will be blood. I'm not, no, not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Anyway, Jerry Goldsmith, a favourite of our show, wrote the score. This is the love theme.
the love theme from Chinatown by Jerry Goldsmith. It's forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Fine film. Um, okay, so wh- where are we now? Oh, Alfie, darling. Yes. Things weren't helped, really, by films like Alfie, Darling. The British film industry were not helping us in 1975. Uh, it was an ill-advised follow-up to the Michael Caine classic. Uh, this time, Alan Price. Alan Price? He was a Geordie, wasn't he? Uh, is the eponymous Alfie. Uh, and directed by Ken Hughes of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang fame. Of course, an obvious choice. Uh, my dad obviously thought the programme needed some help because he coupled it up with... Uh, the film Percy. <laughs> I, I think he was being a bit fruity and funny. Percy was a film from 1971 with Hugh Bennett about a man who has a penis transplant. Yeah, nice. Uh, and spends the rest of the film trying to find out where Percy's already been. Hilarious! To be honest, I've never seen it. Um, I'm not sure I want to, to be honest. Well, it might be interesting. Anybody seen Percy? Let me know. <laughs> Somebody out there's seen it. Um, 584 admissions for uh, for the week commencing May the 4th for Alfie Darling and Percy. Uh, and like Alfie in 1966, it also featured a song by Cilla Black. And not a lot of people know that. Uh, but this time it was written by Alan Price uh, and not by, um, you know, what's his name? <laughs> Bert Bacharach. <laughs> I'm bringing it around. I oh, no, no, I'm, I'm going to get there. here to entertain you though really aren't i i tell you what let's have a break because i'm horribly behind the times and when we come back a bit of uh, elton john something special really different tastes great frankie's spicy pork and beef sausage in a sesame seed roll Mustard, tomato, or fruity sauce. Frankie's, the super hot dog. On sale at the kiosk now. Frankie's, from Lyon. Kevin Markwick. Quite a vibe. I feel this film. I feel this film. 
with rats are bingo. <laughs> Fit to burst 
upon each other. John Amarina, which is actually from the 1970 album um, Tumbleweed Connection. I'm playing it. Do you know why? Because <laughs> it was used on the opening credits, actually, of a classic 1975 film that never played in Uckfield. Um, Sidney Lumet's seminal Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, probably Lumet at his peak, I would think, uh, with Al Pacino... Uh, as the bank robber, remember? I had a cut, I had a cut, and all that. Um, and John Cazell, the great John Cazell, one of the five films that he, uh, he was in, all of which were nominated for Best Picture. Um, you can't imagine what kind of career he'd have had if he hadn't died so young of, uh, bone cancer. Anyway, uh, Lumet, uh, all, he's always at his best when making films about his native New York, and we will actually encounter him, uh, later in the show in very atypical circumstances. Meanwhile, in Wolverhampton... in your own time 
Slade, how does it feel? Slade in flame. Or is it just flame? You know, it's the band Slade in a film called Flame. Well, everyone seems to call it Slade in Flame. It's kind of weird, isn't it? No one calls it Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. Anyway, it's all rather confusing, really. Uh, continuing the theme of putting pop stars in films, uh, this time a whole band. Uh, in truth, Slade had peaked in, uh, by 1975, and uh, their best years were behind them, really. Uh, the film was the story of the rise and the ultimate disintegration of the fictional band Flame. It was very good, but rather depressing, to be honest, and uh, actually the band acquit themselves admirably. Director Richard Longcrane and writer Andrew Birkin accompanied Slade on a tour of the US to understand the life of a rock and roll band better, and uh, many of the experiences they had and the stories the band told them actually made it into the film, into the finished script. However, it ultimately proved to be a bit of a misstep for the band, uh, well received by the critics. It confused the band's fan base, being way too gritty and a bit of a downer. Uh, in later years, Noddy Holder would say that it was uh, too time-consuming to make, which took them out of the recording and touring loop and had a detrimental effect on their career. I was very excited at the prospect, though, having been a big Slade fan since primary school. Um, I don't recall how much I enjoyed it at the time. I think I did. Um, and I saw it again recently, and actually, it's more more of an interesting piece of social history than a truly great film you know it's kind of something vaguely depressing about Arc uh, Arc <laughs> Freudian slip there something vaguely depressing about Britain in the mid 70s although actually there was something vaguely depressing about Arc in the mid 70s probably I know I was there um it played upfield on February the 23rd for seven days and garnered a middling 995 admissions. So not a disaster, but uh, by no means a mahusive hit. Uh, we've heard How Does It Feel from the film, which is one of uh, Slade's best songs, I think, actually. And uh, Noddy Holder thought the song he wrote for the film itself, Far, Far Away, was actually the band's best song. Morning in the mountains of Alaska 
far, far away. Uh, Slade from Slade in Flame. Flame. You decide. Because I'm just tired. Okay, when we come back uh, after this break, it'll be a bit of Monty Python. Now is the time. Time for ice cream. Ice cream time. It's ice cream time with Lion's Mane. Ice cream time with Lion's Mane. Kevin Markwick. 105 Uckfield FM. Thank you. 
the superbly funny fourth wall breaking opening credits from uh, the 1975 comedy classic Monty Python and the Holy Grail. No point in me trying to explain to you if you've not seen it what was going on there with titles and the people who've sacked the responsible for sacking the people who were sacked and all that stuff. And moose bites can be pretty nasty. Uh, if you've not seen it, then you're probably in a minority of about six people. And if you have, you know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, the film went on general release in May 1975 and played for the first time in Uckfield for seven days on June the 15th. Uh, I remember actually uh, he put an Harry H. Corbett comedy with it called The Bar G. Why? Uh, it didn't perform particularly well, actually. Only 641 admissions over the week. But it would be another one of those titles that would return again and again, all the way until the mid-80s. It was another title that would partner up with Blazing Saddles very successfully. And probably outside of With Null and I, it must be the most quoted film of all time. Unlike the first Python feature, which was a collection of sketches, this film, though, was all new material. Holy Grail is an object lesson in making a little go a long way. With a very low budget, the film cost actually only £200,000 to make. They couldn't get a studio to stump up the cash, so the Pythons turned to private investors. Although, let's face it, how hard could it be to get cash from your rock star chums, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd and Genesis? Uh, The low cost actually means that Holy Grail is listed as one of the most profitable films of all time. It cleverly makes a virtue of its threadbare budget, the use of coconuts instead of horses and uh, cardboard castles. However, it looks amazing. Uh, The visual flair brought to the film by directors Gilliam and Jones is amazing. A real sense of the Middle Ages, dirty and pox-ridden, is achieved through clever photography and daft animation sequences. It also benefits from some great and authentic locations, mostly in Scotland, although actually um, Bodium Castle in Sussex does make an appearance. The script and performances are peerless, of course, um, absurdish absurdist flourishes like the black knight losing all his limbs and still fighting on and the bizarre knight to say ni it even manages to make a sort of narrative sense as arthur and the knights of camelot get even closer to their goal of finding the holy grail and of course it has stood the test of time and is as funny now i think as it was then uh not least the wonderful musical sequence uh, where we meet the occupants of camelot and that may lead just how we know the earth to be banana sheep. This new learning amazes me, Sir Bedivere. Explain again how sheep's bladders may be employed to prevent earthquakes. Oh, certainly, sir. Look, my liege. Camelot. 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 It's only a model. Knights, I bid you welcome to your new home. Let us ride to Camelot. <laughs> We're knights of the round table, we dance where we're able. We do routines to call the scenes, to put work in big cable. We dine well here in Camelot, we in Camp and Jam and Spamalot. We're knights of the round table, our shows are more with able. So many times we give and rhymes that are quite unsing able. We're off the magic Camelot, we sing from the dire Camelot. Gable. 
I have to push the pram a lot. No, on second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. From Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which lives on in our hearts and minds and our DVD collection. Uh, And also as the musical Spamalot, which seems to be touring constantly. You're listening to Kevin Markwick. It's Uckfield FM on a Monday night. We're going through the 1970s. Where have you been? We're at 1975 already. We've done six shows. And we're going to keep going for 13 whole shows. I know, there's only 10 years and a decade. I think I'm beginning to formulate a backup plan. Anyway, disaster movie now. Um, and you know how much I like disaster movies. After the huge success of Airport in 1970, Universal finally got their act together and made another film under that banner. The ridiculously entertaining airport 1975 i don't care i don't care if you think it's ridiculous i love it uh it did brisk business in upfield actually well in 1975 terms it did uh 1529 admissions playing seven days on march the 2nd what's not to like about a film that features dana andrews crashing into the side of a 747 killing the crew so it falls to the cabin crew member karen black to fly the plane And the only sensible option is to drop Manly Charlton Heston on a rope from a helicopter into the broken cockpit. Come on. It also has the famous singing nun played by Helen Reddy. And I believe the uh, little girl is Linda Blair from The Exorcist. So you're waiting for her head to start spinning and spewing green spew any minute. Which fortunately doesn't happen. Uh, And also features Hollywood royalty, Gloria Swanson and Myrna Loy. And a fine disaster movie score by uh, John... Oh, I knew I was going to get that wrong. John Kakavas. Kakavas. John Kakavas. That's close enough.
Cavus, John Cacavus, and his score for Airport 1975, which uh, after Airport is the next best airport film. <laughs> airport 77 was okay. Well, I suppose we'll get to that. It was all right. It was a bit silly. <laughs> like this one wasn't. Um, and then Airport 80, the Concorde, that was just, that was awful. Elaine Delon, Sylvia Crystal. And she actually says the line, you, <laughs> uh, you, you pilots are such men. And, uh, George Kennedy says, yeah, that's why they call it a cockpit. <laughs> really? There was no call for that. Uh, what are we doing now? Uh, more disaster movie fun later, folks. Uh, which will also be the second of our John Williams scores tonight. Uh, the first being his music for the Clint Eastwood thriller The Iger Sanction, a sort of silly film that did, however, feature some spectacular climbing sequences. There's one that really sticks in my mind where he climbs to the top of one of the stacks uh, in uh, Monument Valley. Uh, in, um, uh, is it in Monument Valley? I don't know. Anyway. Where they filmed all the westerns. And... Um, He's doing uh, all his own stunts, actually, in the film, and he's standing on top of this thing, and the helicopter shot goes all the way around. It's actually quite spectacular. He directed it himself. It was not a hit with the people of Upfield, though. 309 admissions in five days on November the 10th. But the score was quite nice.
Kevin Markwick. 105 Uckfield FM. You think he's gone? He's not gone! That's the whole point! He's never gone! You've done it all! Nothing left, all gone and run away. Maybe you'll tarry for a while. It's just a test, a game for us to play. Win or lose, it's hard to smile. Resist, resist. To yourself, you have to have Come up and see me to make a smile I do what you want, but I do Harley, Cockney Rebel. Of course, but you knew that. From the year we are covering in our journey through the cinema of the 1970s, it's 1975, and it's kind of seen through the eyes of a provincial cinema and a sort of more global view of a film fan like myself. So if you don't know, I'm Kevin Markwick. I own the cinema in Uckfield, and uh, I grew up in it marinated in cinema and uh, experienced a lot of the stuff we're talking about saw a lot of the films we're talking about and uh, yeah it's just a kind of perspective really on uh, cinema of the 70s it's not meant to be academically accurate or even uh, you know don't refer back to it for any um, you know anything useful it's just me wittering on like a simple-minded horse um now uh, where were we? Oh, 1975. And actually, do get in touch with the show if you're enjoying it, at Kevin Markwick on Twitter. There's a Facebook page you can go to, The Kevin Markwick Show. Uh, let me know. Did you go to the cinema in the 70s? Did you see anything in Uckfield in the 70s? That would be interesting to know. Anyway, if you've been following the show, you'll know that a new Bond was still a big deal for us and a big deal for cinema owners. <laughs>
thing that's my converty program on my desktop that converts cd things to mpegs i'm gonna have to look at that aren't i we used to have that in the olden days sorry everyone uh lulu the man with the golden gun from the second outing for dodger as 007 um there were no leading man casting issues for the first time in a while as living that died been a big hit and the studio and Eon were happy for Roger Moore to continue in the role. Returning to direct his fourth and final Bond was veteran Guy Hamilton. Uh, the book itself was published after Fleming had died, and, as usual, most of the story was jettisoned anyway for a whole new plot, with only trace elements of the source material remaining. Uh, location's always a big driver in the construction of a Bond movie, and this time the producers decided the Far East was going to be where most of the action took place. Presumably to cash in on the Kung Fu craze at the time. Remember we spoke about that last week, or the end of the dragons and the fists of fury and the other things. There were lots of those, weren't there? Girl with the thunderbolt kick. What was the one with the guy pushing the pram that had, like, things out the side of it? <laughs> Pushing his baby along. What was that called? Mm, it was a famous one, wasn't it? Anyway, um, I digress. Uh, if not consciously, actually, uh, the Kung Fu craze must have influenced the decision. One of the more interesting flurries was the use of the... Uh, flourishes, rather. Flurries. Was the use of the wrecked Queen Elizabeth liner that lay on her side in Hong Kong Harbour at the time. Bond arrives on board to discover it's the mobile headquarters of the British Secret Service, and M and Q and Money Money Penny are all aboard. Uh, Albeit on sloping floors, I seem to remember, or was it sloping ceilings? The exteriors were filmed in Hong Kong, with the interiors completed later at Pinewood. Now, Moore hadn't quite gone into full smirk mode at this point. 
and Christopher Lee brings his usual elegance to the role of Scaramanga, the top assassin with three nipples and a fancy gun. Yeah. Brett Eklund is Miss Goodnight, and Maud Adams makes her first appearance in a Bond, being one of the few supporting actors to play another character later down the line when she was Octopussy in 1983. Sadly, they felt the need to bring back the annoying redneck sheriff from Live and Let Die, who just happens to be on holiday in Hong Kong. Uh, one of the most effective characters, though, is Scaramanga's deadly manservant, Knick-Knack, played by the diminutive and charismatic Hervé Vilches. Chronologically, although let's face it, uh, it's not uh, a big Bond strong point, is it? <laughs> Golden Gun should follow You Only Live Twice, and it was on the cards, as Twice was to be Connery's last Bond and Dodger was going to replace him. But for various reasons, telly and things, it didn't work out, so it was shelved, and On Her Majesty's Secret Service was made instead with George Lazenby. And we all know what happened there. At the time, the critics were quite hard on uh, Man with the Golden Gun, giving mainly lukewarm reviews, and in all honesty, in the Bond canon, it's not a high point. It made a wonking great profit for E.ON and United Artists, of course, but it received a muted response from audiences, uh, being nothing like as successful as Live and Let Die. Uh, and this is slightly reflected in the score, actually... John Barry was back, which is a good thing, uh, but it's not one of his best. It's not terrible. It's quite entertaining in places. Uh, but he was only given three weeks to come up with the music and the main title song. So under the circumstances, he did pretty well. Uh, this is the cue uh, called Return to Scaramanga's Funhouse.
Return to Scaramanga's Funhouse uh, at a bit at the end, you remember? Or maybe you don't. Um, from John Barry's score for The Man with the Golden Gun. It's good to have John Barry back, actually, I think, don't you? Uh, you know, um, Paul McCartney was right, but uh, Bond films sound better with John Barry. Um, and I think the next one, a couple of years to go, and then we will... Uh, We'll be on what is Dodger's finest moment, really. Let's face it, the spy who loved me. Uh, the Man with the Golden Gun played for two weeks in Uckfield over the Easter holidays, opening on Easter Sunday, March the 23rd. It managed 3,375 admissions in the two weeks. Uh, not exactly massive. Uh, it was okay. It had opened at the Odeon Leicester Square at the end of December 1974 and presumably played key cities after that. I don't know. Um, I know they used to split the releases. It used to come in after the London release. It's a bit complicated. Maybe I'll work out a way of explaining it without it being totally boring. Uh, anyway, a three-month-old Bond was certainly an improvement over previous years. I think it was about the last one in this sort of period for the next 10 or 20 years they released at Easter. I think I seem to remember, it's coming back to me now, that, that it was considered a bad idea to release it at Easter because you often get hot weather and things like that. Although you get hot weather in the summer. I don't know. Um, what is interesting is the following film on April the 6th did as well in one week as the Bond had in two. Uh, maybe maybe the weather was good, who knows. Um, that following week was the first feature film based on James Herriot's vet books, uh, All Creatures Great and Small, featuring Simon Ward as Herriot, Anthony Hopkins as Siegfried, and uh, Lisa Harrow as the future Mrs Herriot. Obviously it would... Um, uh, go on and be a huge TV show. I'm sure you're familiar with the material. Basically, uh, anecdotes from the life of a country vet in the 1930s. It was huge. 3,245 admissions in seven days. I do remember that being a big thing at the time. And actually, it went out with a second feature called Beautiful People, which was rather good. A cinemascope wildlife documentary, which stuck in my mind because there was a brilliant sequence in it where all the monkeys and the elephants are all drunk <laughs> on mangoes on fermented mangoes it's very very funny all these sort of wonky woozy elephants and uh monkeys falling over monkeys falling over is always funny isn't it anyway of course it was right up our street uh proving that the audience was out there but what we were mostly giving them they didn't want to see uh this is backed up by the following week when we played the mean machine uh or the uh the longest yard uh, as it was called, stateside for a week. Absolute disaster. 456 admissions for the week. Less than one day of the Harriet film. Why? Oh, why? The concept of the holdover, keeping a film going until it lay dead and empty on the floor, was not thought of then, or at least not in a provincial cinema like ours. It didn't occur to him. Hold it on for another week. How bad can it be? Um... So we stuck with a totally un we were stuck with a totally unsuitable US film about American football with Burt Reynolds. It was never going to take any money. Cornish dairy ice cream made with egg and fresh butter. Strawberry Cornish dairy ice cream. And in the foyer, you can obtain leading brands of cigarettes and confectionery. 
Kevin Markwick. A better variety of music. at the end of these tracks now what do you reckon is it going to fade yeah that's good enough isn't it um what was her name maureen mcgovern we may never love like this again from the towering inferno no less uh it's our second john williams score uh from the totally entertaining disaster movie that came out in 1975 it's pretty much the gold standard, actually, of disaster movies. A critical and commercial success, it was the first film ever to be co-produced by two film studios. Uh, Fox had bought the rights to the book The Glass Inferno, and Warners had bought The Tower. Now, these days, they'd make two films. <laughs> but no. Sense prevailed, because uh, both of the books were about big buildings burning. And Erwin Allen, the producer, convinced both studios that two films about the same thing would spoil both. And so a deal was done, where Fox got the domestic rights, i.e. North America, and Warner Brothers took the rest of the world. Uh, they split the cost of production, and the film went on to be the second highest grossing film of the year in the US. Released in December 74 in America, uh, it premiered in London on January the 29th, 1975, and finally arrived in Uckfield on September the 14th. You know, it's not getting much better, is it? For seven days. Did a perfectly reasonable 1,776 admissions. Uh, the story, of course, is fairly straightforward. A big building catches fire on the night of its official opening because of a cost-cutting or cost-cutting by the arrogant, wastrel son of the builder. Uh, all manner of Hollywood stars are inside to be lined up as hot lunches. 
Faye Dunaway, Fred Astaire, Richard Chamberlain, Robert Wagner, Robert Vaughan, Jennifer Jones. Uh, the two big names, though, are Paul Newman as the architect and Steve McQueen as the head fireman. Both were huge stars at the time, and there was all sorts of shenanigans about who would get top billing. Uh, so all their agents, uh, backwards and forwards and this and that, uh, and arguing the toss, and then they were in, and then they were out, and then they were up, and then they were down. Anyway, eventually a compromise was agreed, uh, whereby Steve McQueen's name would appear uh, in the prime position on the left, but lower than Paul Newman's name. So if you read left to right, McQueen gets top billing, but if you read top to bottom, Newman is kingpin. And you'll also notice uh, that the pictures of them on the poster are arranged in the same way, with McQueen on the left, but lower than Newman. Yikes. Anyway, they were, oh, and they were also promised the same salary and screen time. So uh, when someone worked out there was a gap... <laughs> I can't remember which way round it was. Anyway, the other the other one had to have scenes written specially to achieve equal screen time. Honestly, they're like children, aren't they? Uh, but the film is really thrilling, uh, as directed by uh, Brit John Gilliman, actually, uh, with convincing effects, of course, it's Owen Allen, and a real sense of danger and panic. The high-grade cast lifts it out of any sort of cod melodrama and the whole thing clicks along at a nice pace, if not a little overlong. But, you know, that's my thing. Most films are too long, in all honesty. Uh, the musical score also included the song We May Never Love Like This Again by Lionel Newman and uh, Dorcas Cochran, which you've already heard, and it would win the Academy Award for Best Song. And the main music and incidental score is by John Williams. Uh, this is the main theme. <laughs>
John Williams score for the Towering Inferno. There was me just coming up to my 14th birthday. I loved it. I remember, actually, I've just remembered this literally as I'm sitting here, becoming slightly obsessed with the poster. And I used to try and draw the shape of the, you know, tower. What can I tell you? No one understood me as a child. Few understand me now, if I'm honest. So, an old Disney film came to the rescue for October half term. Uh, we talked about this last week, I believe. Uh, because there was only a new Disney cartoon feature every four years, uh, we relied heavily on the back catalogue, and 1975 was no exception. Um, there were new live-action releases like Escape to Witch Mountain. Um, all sorts, actually. Apple Dumpling Gang. Anybody remember that? Million Dollar Duck. <laughs> the Cat from Outer Space. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. Uh, but for the big business, you still needed a cartoon. And uh, in October 1975, we played the reissue of Lady and the Tramp from 1955. And because it was October half term, it was pretty busy. 2,611 admissions for a film that old in six days. Uh, nearly 500 a day, which was pretty good then. Uh, what's a little odd by today's standards is that it had to play with a full-length second feature. Uh, this time a deadly, boring thing with Patrick Wayne about a man raising bear cubs. Because uh, this wasn't like a, a, a reissue that he put together and put in. This was actually a release. It was released for October half term by Disney. Um, and of course, this thing was a full 90 minutes long. Uh, and when all anyone was interested in was the, was the cartoon. And you just had these restless kids waiting for Lady and the Tramp. So my dad came up with a solution to this uh, some years before. And although Lady and the Tramp was the feature, which meant it should play last, he would always play the cartoon first. Uh, this saved mutinous bored kids causing mayhem as they watched the uh, boring second feature. Of course, what it did mean is the place would empty out and Bears and I would be running to virtually nobody. Uh, those were also the days when playing a different film in the evening over a Disney was considered high treason and would have resulted in all sorts of sanctions against us by the cuddly old Disney Corporation. So at 8.30 at night, there really was no one watching the second feature. Uh, Lady and the Tramp, of course, was notable for some good songs and for being the first cartoon produced in the widescreen cinemascope process. Well, that's very interesting, Kevin. Actually, it is. It was a sort of re, uh, sort of a rehearsal for, um, Sleeping Beauty, which they would shoot next, I believe, in, uh, 70mm. So there. Here's one of the great moments from the film. Uh, Peggy Lee singing He's a Tramp. What a dog. Yeah. Tell us about it, Peg. What a dog. Peg used to be in the dog and pony follies. <laughs> He's a tramp, but they love him. Breaks a new heart. Every day He's a tramp They adore him And I only hope He'll stay that way He's a tramp He's a scoundrel He's a rounder He's a cab He's a tramp But I love him Yes, even I Have got it pretty bad You can never tell when 
he'll show up. He gives you plenty of trouble. I guess he's just a no count pup. But I wish that he were double. He's a tramp. He's a rover. And there's nothing more to say. If he's a tramp, he's a good one. And I wish that I could travel his way. Wish that I could travel his way. Wish that I could travel his way. Kevin Markwick, 105 Uckfield FM. He's more machine now than man, twisted and evil. It's not my way to love you just when no one's looking. It's not my way to take your hand if I'm not sure. It's not my way to let you see what's going on inside of me When it's love you won't be needing, you're not free Please stop pulling at my sleeve if you're just playing If you won't take the things you make me want to give I never care too much for games and this one's driving me insane you're not half as free to wander as you claim But I'm easy Yeah, I'm easy Give the word, I'll play your game As though that's how it ought to be Cause I'm easy Don't lead me on if there's nowhere for you to take me Loving you have to be a sometime thing I can't put bars on my insides My love is something I can't hide It still hurts when I recall the times I've tried But I'm easy Yeah, I'm easy Take my hand and pull me down I won't put us in a fight Cause I'm easy Don't do me favors Let me watch you from a distance Cause when you're near I find it hard to keep my head When your eyes throw light at mine It's enough to change my mind Make me leave my cautious words And ways behind that's why I'm easy Yeah, I'm easy Say you want me, I'll come running Without taking time to think Because I'm easy Yeah, I'm easy Take my hand and pull me down I won't put up any fight Because I'm easy Yeah, I'm easy Give the word, oh, I'll yes. play your game So that's how it ought to be Cause I'm easy Keith Carradine, uh, I'm easy From the soundtrack of Robert Altman's masterpiece Nashville 
such a masterpiece. It's never actually played in Uckfield. Uh, that's not entirely fair. I can't imagine it seemed like a commercial prospect, Uckfield-wise. A two-hour, 40-minute mainstream stroke art house crossover sardonic comedy about country music and politics. Why wouldn't it do well in Uckfield? My God, it's brilliant, though. Uh, the scene where Caroline sings that song is just brilliant as the three women in the audience who believe he wrote the song for them slowly realise it's not. And uh, they all start to turn and they notice the shy... Is he shy in it? He's just kind of like a rabbit caught in the headlights, Lily Tomlin. They suddenly realise that he's looking directly at her and they have no idea who she is. It's just brilliant. Lily Tomlin should have won the Academy Award for that scene alone. However, it went to Lee Grant for Shampoo. Shampoo? <laughs> Said in a comedy style, Shampoo. I felt it was because it's got poo in the word, isn't it? I mean, this is just, just childish, Kevin. Remember, I'm, only, I'm barely 14, okay? It's 1975. Uh, uh, shampoo did, <laughs> did play upfield. Um, which isn't, you know, it's not one of the greatest Halash. I'd love Halashby, but uh, Shampoo, eh, it's all right. Uh, the Best Picture nominees for 1975, handed out in 1976, of course, is quite an impressive list. Nashville, Jaws, Dog Day Afternoon, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Barry Lyndon. Every one of those are classic. Amazing, isn't it? Cuckoo's Nest won, and obviously Jaws was famously 1975, but will be covered in the next show, and all for a good reason that will become clear eventually. Uh, Barry Lyndon, though, only played for the first time last year when I showed it as part of my Cinephile Sunday strand. Why it didn't play, I have no idea. Uh, it was released in December 75 and remains a quite jaw-dropping piece of cinema. Uh, it's often overlooked, sandwiched as it is between A Clockwork Orange and The Shining. Uh, it also didn't generate the box office warners were expecting. At the time, it seems critics and to some degree audiences admired it rather than loved it. I think this is the usual problem people have with Kubrick, accusing his films of being cold and dispassionate. For me, I rather think it's more that his films observe, and whilst he remains a master manipulator, he is so skilled, he doesn't need to bludgeon his audience into submission with obvious music cues and hand-holding them through the narrative. Barry Lyndon is moving, and it is beautiful. John Alcott's images are like moving Gainsboroughs, and you could fill a whole show on its technique. Not least Kubrick's insistence the night scenes be only lit by candlelight. Um, they actually used um, lenses from NASA, these great big lenses, to collect all the light, uh, as it would have been in the 18th century. Ryan O'Neill has the right amount of innocence and guile in the title role. And as with later Kubrick, the score is mainly classical pieces. Here is the beautiful Women of Ireland, as interpreted by the Chieftains.
the Chieftains, uh, the music, uh, Women of Ireland from Barry Lyndon. Seeing it on the big screen again recently was such a treat. Actually, I'd say again, I'd never seen it on the big screen. Quite extraordinary, the um, big uh, dual sequence in the barn. It's like nothing else. If you've never seen it, please try and find it. I've got the Blu-ray if you want to borrow it. Okay. Um. Oh, back to Sydney Lumet now and Murder on the Orient Express. Um, what I thought was an odd film for him to make, but looking at his filmography, he actually made a wide range of stuff. Uh, predominantly New York stories like Serpico, Network, Prince of the City, etc., but a whole raft of other films. And uh, surprisingly often in the UK. Uh, the Hill, for instance, with Sean Connery in 1965, and Equus in 1977, and the scary adaptation of Ira Levin's Death Trap with Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve in 1982. Uh, so Orient Express is a perfectly reasonable choice, actually. Uh, it did great business in Upfield, as you can imagine, being right in our target audience profile, playing in uh, April the 20th for seven days, 1,160 admissions. Uh, an all-star cast, including the best Poirot ever, Albert Finney, Lauren Bacall, Ingrid Bergman, Sean Connery, John Gilgan, and a ton of others. Photographed with an almost, I have to say, slightly chilly Art Deco sheen by uh, Jeffrey Unsworth. It's far superior to the recent rather overplayed snooze fest <laughs> with Kenny Brenner. Sorry, sorry, Kenny. Um, and as an added bonus, it features another of Richard Rodney Bennett's lovely scores. Uh, and uh, it starts very quietly, so here we go. Can you hear this? So I imagine a train. <laughs> I've got it turned up. Oh, yeah. Can you hear it? Here it comes. Ah. <gasps> Imagine a train. What's wrong with you?
Oh, it's lovely stuff, isn't it? I was waltzing around the studio. May not be true. Uh, Richard Rodney Bennett's uh, rather lovely score for Murder on the Orient Express, uh, which played in Uckfield in 1975. Uh, it's almost over. Kevin Markwick here taking you through 1975. Uh, have a break, then we'll have a bit of a wind-up. Uh, I haven't got any more film music for you, but I thought we'd just have a quick, uh, a quick chat to the other side of the, uh, the other side of the break. Get with it, young man, get in the swing. All the ice cream is that cool zing. So make the evening a regular ball. Get the refreshment that's got it all. Cool man, like ice cream. Get yours now. So here's a bit of 1975 for you. From uh, Wish You Were Here, Pink Floyd's Mahusive album. Uh, we've got four minutes left. So what have we learned from 1975? Trust me, what you've just heard is pretty much the best of it from a business point of view. There are some dire moments I can see from the book. I've actually got all the books here from the uh, from the 70s. I've got all the information back from 1964 when we uh, came to the cinema as a family. So with only one screen and a dearth of films that would appeal, and presumably some of them playing really late, you can see things are getting desperate. The cheap and easy success of the Confessions films gave rise to an endless tide of even cheaper British smut. You know, I'm no prude, but... I mean, I'm really not honest. Can you keep it up for a week? Seven days, Feb 2? Flesh Gordon. Flesh Gordon! Seven days, May 18, 461 admissions. There are weeks in June where we're having under 300 people a week. Death Wish, for instance, 200 and something. The Amorous Milkman. Oh, you can find clips from that on YouTube. It's just awful. Seven days, a whole week. On June the 29th, 329 admissions. So it was the odd big title like Towering Inferno and James Bond and a vet from Yorkshire that kept the cinema afloat. Barely. That and reruns of, an, of increasingly older films. You know, Blazing Saddles was still in there. Where Eagles Dare turns up for at least the next two or three years. And we hadn't hit rock bottom yet. And he would endure one more year, it seems. And then it was time to do something about it. So tune in next week for 1976. Which was right at the end of his tether. Business would drop lower than it had been before, and something had to be done. So, I'll see you next week if you listen to the podcast. Thank you. I love you. If you're not listening to the podcast, I still love you too. Do get in touch with the show at Kevin Markwick or the Kevin Markwick Show on Facebook. And let me know what you think. 
and give me some of your experiences as well. It'd be great to hear from you. I'll leave you with Shine On Your Crazy Diamond. About a minute of that you got, and then it's into the news. Bye! I love you! And on your mobile, we are.